Enough is enough! I have had it with these motherfucking snakes on this motherfucking brain. Everybody strap in! I'm about to open some fucking windows. Am I recording now? Yes, I am. I'm using my radio voice now that I have a fancy new microphone above me, and I think you'll also notice my ring light. I'm very professional here. I'm ready to be part of the Moreno Podcast Network. Oh my god, what a horrible name. <laughs> the Mexican Jew Radio Network. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> Mexican Jew. I can't believe that in our graduate school program, there was another half Mexican, half Jewish girl with like all the same letters in uh. her name, except one. <laughs> Ariel? Yes. I didn't even know that. Yes. Okay. <laughs> wow. Welcome listeners to the Misbehavior Journal Club. I'm Amiel Marino, PhD, here with... Nicole Davies, father of cats. And we are two scientifically trained and certifiably funny people bringing you the behind the scenes look at the latest neuroscience research with humor, vinegar, and humanity. I'm drinking some soda with vinegar in it right now. Soda with vinegar? Yeah, it's soda with vinegar. It's so. You mean kombucha? No, I just mean vinegar. It's supposed to be uh, prebiotic. Okay. Like basically anything you put in your body, actually, is prebiotic. Usually, if it doesn't already have bacteria in it, right. it's before it's about the to bacteria. Be. <laughs> it's a. That's not how it works. Yeah. Just trying to do. I'm just trying to do as many callbacks to the last two shows as possible. That's why. I, yeah, great. I'm actually sitting in a bath of vinegar right now. Oh, I hope it helps. It's helping, all right. <laughs> oh God. First of all, I just want to say I appreciate you making a space for boring people so that we can have some representation. So, you know, I spent three hours trying to think of uh, one one personal introduction to highlight uh-huh. that didn't involve me staring at a computer all day, which is what I do for personal introductions and highlights. I'm going to an 80s birthday party this coming weekend. I got that going on. That sounds awesome. Does it? Do you know what you're going to wear? <laughs> I was thinking about the Marty McFly costume. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Classic. Good stuff. Yeah. I heard about a party that's coming up at the end of this month. It's Halloween. It's Halloween yeah. month. This all of October is Halloween to me. I already have the decorations up. I'm already thinking about costumes. I have an 80s party as well. It's going to be just a 80s costume party uh, at the end of the month. What? Really? Yeah. That's Uh-huh. Is that your Halloween party? Or... It's going, yeah, that's the only Halloween dress-up party I've been invited to. I see. Have, so you, um, you got a costume picked up? Well, I am seeing a guy who is, he looks like he's out of a 80s teen movie where he's the bad guy on the ski slopes that like teases the nerds. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he dresses to match that. And so I thought it would be really funny if I took all of my punk stuff and put that on him. And then I went as like a terminal preppy 80s girl. Just a real nice Uh role reversal. Yeah, you're the Molly Ringwald. Oh, God, how ugly was that dress in Pretty in Pink? Were we supposed to like that? It was hideous. I was going for a breakfast club thing here, but yeah. Yeah, she was pretty in that. Oh, maybe I can pull that off. Oh, my God. 
I was kind of, I was liking seeing you as the punk, but yeah, the role reversal is nice. I like Yeah, it wouldn't like be it. a costume if I was wearing all my spikes. <laughs> so you're coming to the show with a shared announcement. I am, yeah. I. It's not Halloween themed. Uh, okay, I'll allow it though. What's up? <laughs> I'll, try to, I'll try to segue it into being Halloween themed. You know what's really scary though, Amiel? <laughs> <laughs> what's that, Nicole? <laughs> The threat to open science represented by the implementation of the recent memorandum from the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Wow, those you I didn't know you had the Halloween sound effects tape ready. But uh, Yeah, I got the drops going. <laughs> yeah, I heard a little bit about this that there's a push to open up any research that was funded by taxpayers to guess what taxpayers yeah. are they going to check my taxes before i can access yeah it? you do have to provide a return from the irs showing that yeah that's the only way do i need to do i need to be a land owning male <laughs> unfortunately yes so that's damn it <laughs> it's not quite that bad but they're okay yes i almost would appreciate that throwback uh-huh yeah the thing is like for some people, you'll only be able to read three-fifths of the article, so it's... <laughs> oh, my God! <laughs> uh, I just always skip the methods. Right. Just leave that one out. <laughs> right, it's actually saving me time. Uh, finally, I appreciate being, you know, excluded from the system. Mm-hmm. Systemically. Less of a person. Yeah, it's great. It works out for me once. Um, yeah, the good news is that the White House, this... WHOSTP released this memorandum saying all research that's paid for with taxpayer funding, the, the results should be freely accessible. Nice. And so they can just come out and say that. And now, you know, this is the way it works. Somebody has to actually implement that. So there's this long history of publishers who, if you don't know, I know you know, but so everyone listening yeah. knows, they make an insane amount of profit, like more than many other industries, like something like 39 uh, percent a year above thirty nine percent of what they take in as profits, which mm-hmm. is which compared to other other industries is crazy, and they have a long history of basically perverting the process of how things get implemented, like open access, so that somebody still pays them, and that's the risk here that could happen with this memorandum. So basically, there's this open letter that went out from the or- organizers of this conference, Neuromatch. Just saying, please, if you're going to do this, do it in a way where it's actually free. And what doesn't end up happening, which is what they're afraid of, is that like the only way you can publish is if you pay enough to get it to be air quotes open. So the way it works now is you have to like pay the publisher to make it open. Yeah. In a lot of but not all cases. That's what I ended up doing. It was actually a beautiful moment when my PI looked at me and was like, so... I think I think we should pay to keep this open. And I was like, oh, "Yeah, I'm that special, <laughs> right?" Because it's all from grant money yeah. that he begged for, and it feels great, like for an individual person, right? It's like, yes, of course, I want this to be free, and if you're going to pay for it so that people can actually see what I did, but then what happens when only the people who get the grants are able to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Then it's like shutting out people from actually publishing. So I'm going to be selling all my Elsevier stock pretty soon, right? (laughs) Yes, you should. Just (laughs) unloading all of that. Yeah. Bye-bye 30% profit margins. Would be nice. Would be nice. 
if if we can stop them from charging so much. So I, do you have a way to like put this? There's this open letter that we're talking about. Can you put that in uh -huh. sh in show notes or? Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. Okay. and I'll tweet it out too. Yeah. It's uh, something that people can sign. Yes, it, they definitely can. And there's there's a thing on there also about like why you would want to sign this in case. Sure. Ex uh, explain it clearly just now. And there's also. Oh, you didn't. I know I didn't. <laughs> uh, I tried to explain it spookily though for Halloween. I think that's what's really important. And they also, from the same group, came out with this sort of like, they're proposing a different system of publishing, and that's on the same site too. So a way to set things mm. up so they can all be open. Just wanted to share that at the top, right after some 80s references. Thank you. Sure. No, I really appreciate you looking that up for me, for science. Thank you for doing that for science, Nicole. Everything I do, I do it. Everything I do. No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> now I have to cut in the music. <laughs> it's very time consuming. I'm being Brian Adams for my 80s Halloween party. Mm. You could totally do a fun singer and annoy the hell out of everyone at the party. Yes. Oh, what's the party like? Are they friends? Is it like a work thing? It's, it... it's uh, my cousin and it's her husband's 40th birthday party. So. That's awesome. Oh, good for them. Yeah. Cool. Well, you want to get to some uh, spooky science? Yeah, let's do it. Great. Let's let's boo it. <laughs> it's time for some Halloween-themed notable news coverage. In this segment, we're going to briefly present two noteworthy events or findings from the world of science. Science, 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 science. 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 Boo. <laughs> So I thought I would talk a little bit about fear. There's a specific phobias, which is a type of anxiety disorder in which you're scared of one specific thing. And uh, in somebody's lifetime, uh, there's like a 3 to 15% chance that this is going to occur in any given person. In fact, one of the things that it seems to be more likely that people are afraid of is snakes. In one survey, 53% of the participants at least expressed some level of anxiety about snakes. And it turns out this might have evolutionary origins. Which is something I say after every sentence. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to make some sort of like in-bed joke, but <laughs> doesn't pan out. It's not as helpful as it is in fortune cookies. Right. <laughs> So I always get excited when somebody brings up the pulvinar. Is that how you pronounce that? Pul I've only pul read it. Pulvinar. Nobody ever talks about this part of the brain. Mm. Ever. To the point that I don't know how to say it. It's so underrated, the pulvinar. It's pulvinar? so subcortical that people forget it's even there. <laughs> it's underground. But, yeah, it's this cool ancient pathway that the brain has whereby information from the retina goes through the pulvinar, and instead of going to the visual cortex, it just reroutes everything to the amygdala, which is an area that uh, processes a lot of our uh, emotional responses to stimuli. It's like, it's one of the few times where the analogy of a brain to a computer actually works for me, is when there's like an old operating system that's kind of going on behind the... I don't know how computers work. You you do you do this analogy <laughs> right. for me, right? The pulvinar pulvinar is like uh, 
DOS, the disk operating system running in the background on Windows. <laughs> it's like, sure, you have the Windows that you just see in mm -hmm. your visual in your visual system all the time you're like oh everything looks like windows but then when something <laughs> but then when something really stressful happens then the computer's like i got to go through dos yeah I, time for the pulvener did that analogy work no but it's fine no i think people understand though cuz they're smart we've got smart listeners they do except the people who just listen for my voice which is really sweet and kind of creepy <laughs> tom <laughs> <laughs> So it turns out this pulvener also goes to the prefrontal cortex. It sends the messages that it's receiving from the retina just directly to our uh, higher processing areas of our brain that usually don't deal directly with sensory stimuli. It's like a shortcut. And it turns out uh, this pathway is activated when you see a face that looks very fearful or like a scary stimulus. Apparently, according to some new research, it has a lot to do with our responses to snakes. We're talking about snakes on the brain. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I wanted to get that joke in. <laughs> yes. Alternative dumbed down title for this paper is snakes on a brain or nice snake versus strike snake. <laughs> this is from the uh, journal Frontiers in Behavioral Neuroscience. It's titled Preferential Neuronal Responses to Snakes in the Monkey Medial Prefrontal Cortex Support and Evolutionary Origins of Ophidiophobia, which is the fear of snakes. This is out of a bunch of universities that are apparently infested with snakes. <laughs> the University of Toyama in Japan the Vietnamese Military Medical University, the University of Brasilia, and the CEUMA, University of Brazil. The first author is Din, D-I-N-H, and the last author is Nishijo, N-I-S-H-I-J-O. So why do we give a fuck? Um, what the researchers were looking at here was what pathways are responsible for transmitting the visual snake versus no snake information, or even more importantly, what pathways are responsible when that snake is more dangerous, like it's in a position that looks like it might strike. And so for this, they were looking at the medial prefrontal cortex for its response to these snakes and potentially through that uh, underground, under cortical subterfuge pulvinar. So what methods did they use? Uh, first, they apparently desensitized the members of their laboratory to thousands of pictures of snakes, or at least offered to pay for their therapy after they ran this study. Um, what they found was, I'm going to just kind of jump right to the findings, keep it short and sweet. I had a busy week, Nicole, <laughs> and so I didn't read too much into the details. I kept it a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah. Tell me about your favorite figure in this paper. <laughs> it's the one with the actual results. Oh yeah. <laughs> Why? So they do the they do these single unit recordings from neurons. I guess this is in medial prefrontal cortex. Totally. And th yes. And and then they they're showing that pictures of there's like two types of snake pictures, right? There's like mm -hmm. the curled up snakes, and then there's the ready to strike snakes. Right? Exactly. The snakes look like, you know, they've been working a shift at Starbucks for 10 hours and they want to demand minimum wage. They're ready <laughs> to strike. 
Oh my god. I know you're going to edit this out, and I just made this beautiful joke. But... It is beautiful. I'm not going to edit that out. <laughs> so, so, just uh, for, for content here. So, <laughs> so they're recording these neurons, and then, you know, like you often do, you take like every trial, and then you stack them up. So mm-hmm. that you like, for every second in a trial, you have like a bin, and you count how many spikes are in it. And when you're doing that with studies of snakes, it's called a perihistogram. Uh, oh, excuse me, peri-event histogram. And what you see is that when the histograms, you do that better than me. You speak parcel tongue. <laughs> let's, let's not, Harry Potter's canceled. Uh, <clears throat> what, what they see is that the, there's more spikes per bin in the case where the snake looks like it's ready to strike. Mm-hmm. When they looked at the activity of a macaque monkey's medial prefrontal cortex, it responded faster and stronger to snake pictures of the snake in a striking position rather than a snake that was all curled up minding its own fucking business like it should. (laughs) So that's like, that's like their one actual result in this paper where they're like, proved it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and then the, and then the rest of it you yeah, know these monkeys kind of... have never seen a snake before and yeah. yet so this is a, a perfect opportunity unlike humans that like you'd have to get at them when they're like a little baby and test we have seen when in the development you know this particular fear uh manifests right it's... like in undergrad when you would put the babies in the snake room for your studies <laughs> 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 Shh, we're not supposed to tell anyone about the oh, snake sorry. room. <laughs> um, so the idea is that even though the motor response for us to escape isn't going to be fast enough if the snake is actually striking, getting that heads up that it's already in that position, that could potentially help any animal that is at risk of being prey or attacked by a snake to get the fuck out of the way. Sounds like it has an evolutionary origin. Just guessing, based on what I know about evolution. (laughs) Well, it turns out that the medial prefrontal cortex, these neurons respond stronger to pictures of snakes than other animals. And it's a lot easier for humans to learn a fear of snakes than to other control objects, suggesting that there is some sort of underlying strength to this fear. I think that's really fascinating because of how specific it is, how many millions of years these two animals had to have lived next to each other before the circuitry of the brain developed this particular sensitivity to an evolutionary threat. Yeah, this is one of those times where you're like, okay, so how can that happen? Like, is it really just hardwired that there's a part of the brain that lights up when it sees snakes like this Mm -hmm. it just is really surprising although there seems to be good evidence like part of the paper is kind of like a review and then part of it is doing this study another cool thing about phobias is that we can see a general trend if you look at people who have animal phobias they tend to i mean you can notice this just into the bar when you're going out Their rostral accumbens is just a little bit bigger than everybody else's. Are we, first of all, we're veering into phrenology here. (laughs) (laughs) Also, this is turning into like a live action version of the meme, like, 
hey, we saw you from across the bar and we thought your <laughs> roster roll accumbens looked huge. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I've presented these types of results to you before in which there's a like general trend of mm-hmm. a brain physiological difference between two groups. And you correctly have pointed out that this is not something noticeable just if you're looking at a brain scan of a person. This is on averages. Um we can find a, we can find a statistically significant difference. Yes. <clears throat> um, yes. Me, me and Leo were talking about this You're in so episode mad. 50 that <laughs> you know, we're slave to averages uh-huh. in research and there just happens to be this one. Yeah, so I appreciate you having me on after episode 50 on the episode no one cares about episode 51. <laughs> <laughs> if only we had a, an extra finger on one hand, we could celebrate. Wait, how many? Do you have five? Yeah, I'm like one of those Hemingway cats. <laughs> <laughs> Did I get? Is that is that what they're called? I don't. No. Yeah, you got it. Thank you. I just stare at computers all day. Yeah. So, anyways, I'm right as usual. But go on. <laughs> <laughs> it uh, so um, all of this to say that there's a part of your brain that inherently is prepared to recognize snakes. And while no other scientist is willing to say this, I'm going to go on the record and speculate wildly. I would like to speculate wildly that part of the effects of ayahuasca, in which a visualization of serpents is very prominent in the tripping that occurs from its use, Mm -hmm. is because of it happening to activate this recognition of snake software at the bottom of your brain. I like it. I think that I'm glad I could be here for this theory. Yeah. I mean, I'm so why did they not put this in the Frontiers article? This is Because it's speculating wildly. Uh-huh. Speculating <laughs> wildly. Yeah, don't we do that at the end of the show? <laughs> I but first of all okay. First of all, all right, so you're seeing the snakes right now too. It's because I think it's <laughs> <laughs> I think I thought it was. A, I think it's kicking in. They're everywhere. Uh, but <laughs> second of all, yes. But as you pointed out, like this is a Frontiers article, which sometimes they do speculate a little more than other journals. Not to. Uh, oh yeah. Judge, do you, but would yes. You tell me a little bit more about that journal in general. Tell me more about these Frontiers. Yes. This. I mean, this is just scuttlebutt from hanging out on Twitter too much. But there's like. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Frontiers was definitely one of these. It's supposed to be good because it's totally open. You can always look at the articles for free, whoever mm-hmm. you are. But I guess there's some feeling that it's turning into like a... It's just the review process is not great. I've seen a bunch of complaints. Oh. So, And you do see sometimes, like with this article, right? Where you're like, wait, when you showed it to me, I was like, oh, this is going to be a study. Mm-hmm. And then it... But then at the top is like, this is a hypothesis slash theory article. Mm-hmm. And there's and there's like one result in there. So you get the feeling that they were sort of like, uh, we got this one result. Can we just squeeze an article out of it <laughs> if we call it a hypothesis or a theory? Look, this grad student needs to get the hell out of this lab. Exactly. Can we combine right. their review chapter with one of their right. findings that just doesn't yes. fit anywhere else? And that's fine. We are so happy for you, <laughs> how do you pr- what do you how do you think you pronounce d i n h i know it's a I'm, vietnamese mm-hmm. 
I'm pretty sure that all the ways that you've pronounced it so far are very offensive, so... <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to censor all of them. Yeah. <laughs> all right, and that's uh, my study. Uh, thank you for pointing out that I didn't bring a study to the <laughs> show. <laughs> I think everyone wanted it to be a study, including the author, so... <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to email them later. <laughs> okay? You know this, right? It's the only promotion I do for Look, this show. We're, listen, listen, we <laughs> we can we're we're in the peanut gallery. We're not even getting into frontier, so we have you know no shame in in their game. I will confidently say I will never get into frontiers. <laughs> any of their journals. I don't know. I think you've got something with that ayahuasca snake frontiers hypothesis. and speculating wildly. <laughs> Okay, so that that was fun. Thank you. Uh, and I'm very scared now. Ooh, let's keep up. Spooky. Let's keep up the spooky theme. Yes, please. Sp- too too spooky for episode fifty one. Spooky and creepy. Wait a second. Episode fifty one. Area fifty one. Oh, yeah. we should have done some alien thing. Oh, I'm an yeah. idiot. I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> well, bats are kind of like aliens. I'm going to talk about. A real article <laughs> uh, about some bats. Yay! This one, yes, it, in keeping with the theme, the Jewish Halloween bats. Right. <laughs> they are technically Jewish bats. I had not thought about that, but yes, uh, the article is out of Tel Aviv University, uh, and the authors are Joseph Pratt, Moore Taub, and Yossi Yavel, who I hope will forgive me for mispronouncing their names as well. Mm-hmm. Um. <clears throat> And I just saw the the last author actually was at this Gordon Research Conference, and that was kind of like what made me aware of this work. At and the I Gordon to more. Research Conferences. <laughs> and they are, in fact, that commercial. The article title is Everyday Bat Vocalizations Contain Information About Emitter, Addressee, Context, and Behavior. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Very specific article title. You have a question? Yeah, I was thinking about different things in humans that, you know, information we gather from the emitter when they're talking or the way they use certain words to specify the addressee. I was just wondering, what do you think is the most intimidating accent or language that somebody could come at Uh you with? (laughs) It's a tough one. I'm going to say... Jersey female. I... <laughs> <laughs> do you do you care to imitate that so we can get a feeling for? I don't think so. <laughs> what? You're, hey, what you're you think about... you're doing? <laughs> <laughs> it's not bad. It's pretty. I I feel intimidated. I went with German right away, which uh huh. Don't tell me German neuroscientist. <laughs> I can't. I don't. No. Uh, did I tell you about the funny German um, jokes that were cut from my story? No. Okay, so I wrote this article for um, one of my online magazines, and I made some oh, jokes. Oh, ha- Hating Germans Monthly? <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is good content. <laughs> it's something that I, like, creatively designed and yet didn't get used, so I might as well use it somewhere. Right. Okay, so I wrote this article about Europe's biggest witch trial in history. It happened in Germany. 
in it, they're talking about, you know, burning 133 people in a single day and how this was influenced by these cold snaps that had been described as caused by witches. So when these famines came in due to these cold snaps, this like little mini ice age, all these people started turning against each other, saying that there's a witch around who's responsible for their ill fortune. And it led to this just breakdown of society in a lot of spots around this area in West Germany near France. When they were talking about burning people in Germany, I knew I had to make a joke, but I didn't know exactly how to do it. So what I ended up doing was this. I said, um, the lack of central judicial supervision allowed for free implementation of torture. German torture was particularly renowned for inventive ways to inflict pain and tender confession, which goes completely against any modern view of the German people. (laughs) Subtle, very subtle. And I thought to myself, of course they're going to cut that, but I could honestly ask why. That was very... (laughs) Why would you think German people would torture anyone or, or burn a good number of them? I mean, you joke, but we're in the before time when people are going to be able to make that joke about us because of what we're going to do. (laughs) (laughs) What are we going to wait? What are we going to do? And when I say we, I mean them. (laughs) What are you talking about? (laughs) Talking about like Christo fascists in the United States that are. Ah, yes. Yeah. But they've been threatening stuff for so long. They have. I just found a random um, metal screw on my desk Mm -hmm. and that's always very disturbing when you find like a single loose screw and you have no idea where it came from should be in your pulvener yeah just stick it back in there oh man imagine getting stabbed near pull it's a really deep location (laughs) people it's like in there oh god oh right in my right in my pulvener (laughs) oh oh Thank you for listening to my uh, offensive German joke. If I cut that, it can be found on our Patreon. (laughs) So donate and find that content there. Go back to hear all the jokes we've cut from previous episodes. (laughs) Because we always end up with just too much good stuff. No, it was good. I love when you make jokes about Germans. Yeah, who doesn't? I think if if anyone has a right to, half of you does. (laughs) So... (laughs) Okay, so, so, so right, so we're talking about this paper. I would say the alternative dumbed-down title for this paper are, there are many different ways that lady bats yell. <laughs> <laughs> and so let's uh, kind of set this up like, why do we care about this? Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought this is where you're going with like what people communicate, you know, with the way that they talk. Yeah. Not necessarily a semantic information. Instead, you just wanted to make jokes about Germans. But Jersey girls. Oh, excuse me. Jerseys. Yeah, that's why we call them jerseys. What? Oh, shit. Oh, I didn't realize this article is from 2016. Yes, thank you. Awesome. I went back in time to find this article. Yes. Okay, so, so yes, uh, Jersey girls do communicate some things besides the semantic content with the way that they talk. Uh, and we think that there's a bunch of other information in other animals besides Jersey girls mm-hmm. and when they vocalize, right? So, like, this key question of, like, 
okay, we know speech kind of evolved from whatever was there for evolution to work on. There was some sort of vocal communication system, mm-hmm. and it's probably related to what other animals do. How much can they communicate without speech? This is like the key question. And people have different ways of talking about this. So like we know, for example, some, I think it's spider monkeys. They can give a very specific call and then you see a very specific behavior in response to that call. So when they make one noise, mm-hmm. which I'm not going to attempt to imitate, then, <laughs> then that's, so, so that's the sound, perfect, pitch perfect impersonation of that sound that I just delivered. What does that mean? That means there's an eagle or there's like a, a flying predator. Mm. And so all the and we know that because all of the other spider monkeys when they hear that like almost without fail they'll all just duck into the bushes. Mm-hmm. Right? So that gives us evidence of their behavioral response that like this sound means that thing. The problem with figuring out how much information there is in vocalizations is that you can make a noise and I cannot do anything to respond to it and I can still get information out of it, mm-hmm. right? So I'm going to make an analogy right now and I'm going to try to come up with one that will embarrass you or make you feel awkward as much as possible. Perfect. Right? So imagine you farted. Okay, right now? Yeah, can you? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I've, heard you, I've heard you belch on the show yes. before. Oh, okay. Right? So, God. so I, could, I could respond to that and be like, I'm a yell, right? <laughs> <laughs> or I could just do nothing and silently register in my head like some information like Amiel ate a burrito, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm getting information out of that even though I'm not like <laughs> I'm serious. Okay. I, right? I like I'm getting something out of a noise that you made. <laughs> okay. But even if I do not behaviorally respond to it in any way. Yes. Right? If there were two alien scientists watching us they would not have any evidence that I had got that information, mm-hmm. right? But they, but they could still detect, like, your, uh, air quotes, vocalization, yeah. <laughs> right? And so this is the issue that we run into when we try to study other animal communication, uh-huh. right? We don't always have some perfect behavior. So, like, can we just look at the sound they make and try to get some evidence about what information is there? Specifically, sort of like social interactions. And that's why, finally getting to the paper here, (laughs) this is why we're looking at these Egyptian fruit bats, Jewish Egyptian fruit bats, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because they're in Israel. And circumcised. We we don't actually, yes. We don't know the, they could be, you know, they're... I'm not looking. We don't know their religion (laughs) or if they're circumcised, but they are definitely in Israel. Mm -hmm. And there's this colony that the authors are working with. And so now they're going to take like... 16 of them and they're going to have them housed in a lab and they're going to record like every sound they make for like some number of months and so there's going to be two sound boxes and it's going to have like in each sound box there's going to be five females one male and like a couple other bats that they're not sure of the sex or it's like a baby or something that's the setup yeah the way that they worded that was um we continuously monitored Egyptian fruit bats. Not, we set up a microphone, we listened for a certain amount, continuously monitored. They really wanted credit for that. Yeah, I mean, it's a gigantic data set. I forget the number, but something like 150,000 vocalizations. I remember trying to, like, move around vocal and video uh, data. It's just such a mess. Yeah, for sure. You can imagine. And... The thing that they like about the Egyptian fruit bats and that makes 
part of what makes this study interesting is that they have some stereotype vocalizations. So they have like a call that they make when they're hunting. They have a call that they make like an alarm call. Mm-hmm. But a lot of what they do is when they're in these colonies, so they're going to be like in the roost, in a cave, you know, like thousands of them just all like fighting for space and fighting for food. Okay, they fight a lot. Yes, exactly. They they have these like aggressive vocal interactions. They do like feeding aggression, mating aggression, perch aggression. I liked the description of the mating aggression. I... So I don't know how I related to this, but it was described as protest of females against males mating attempts. That would make me very aggressive too. And something that I was never familiar with before, sleep aggression? Squabbling in the sleeping cluster. Yeah. I think I have sleep aggression. I usually just grab all the sheets. Is that why you don't have anyone? Right. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Kick me while I'm down. Hey, wait, are you single? I am. Hey, everyone out there. <laughs> Handsome person in Baltimore waiting for you to contact them. First, you have to sign this petition. Right. Sign, sign the uh, letter to the OTSP, and then uh, the reward is going on a day with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have no trouble imagining why you would be familiar with aggression over mating attempts. My fellow sisters, across the animal spectrum, having to fight against <laughs> male mating attempts. Jesus Christ. I mean, I've been, in a, I've been in a bar with you before, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I need something other than Jesus Christ to say, because Rachel Clyburn doesn't like him when I see that. <laughs> Golly ding dang. <laughs> oh, cinnamon sticks. <laughs> okay, so, so yes, this is part of what makes it so interesting is that, like, they have some existing evidence already that there's, like, different types of aggressive interactions. Yeah. But what they show you, and this is what makes it hard to describe on a podcast, they they present images of the, like, spectrograms, like, visualizations of the sound. Mm -hmm. And by eye, like, to you and me, at least to me, they all look very similar. So if someone asks me, they show me, like, the aggression over food and the aggression over mating attempt. If they show me the spectrograms from each of those, I don't know if I would be able to say which one is which. And so what they want to know in this paper, the, what they're trying to get at is like, is there any difference in those sounds? They're, they're all this sort of like aggressive barking call. But like, can we figure out if there's some difference there that has information? Okay, that's the question that they're asking. And the way they're going to try to answer this is to use machine learning. So they're basically going to segment out these calls and they're going to get some features out of them. And then they're going to train a machine learning classifier. They're going to say, like, they want to train it to classify something. And we'll get to what the something is in a second. But that's, like, basically the whole paper. Take a bunch of these calls that that somebody sat there and annotated by hand. Oh, my God. Very carefully. All 14,000 female calls. (laughs) Right. Exactly. And And then train these models on them and see what we can see. It's really hard to train models. They, they're very dumb. Yeah, they fall off the catwalk. They're always young and on cocaine. On the catwalk. Yep. <laughs> Just like a female bat. So the, okay, so the first thing we're going to do is like try to ask, can we figure out who's emitting the call? The emitter. Yes. 
And so they do this and they get about 75% accuracy for each bat. All right. Because of the way, and we can come back to like, is that a good or bad number in a second? But let's just kind of like roll through everything that they show us here really quick. <laughs> so, so first they classify and they're like, we can, we can get 75% accuracy on the emitter, right? Mm-hmm. Then they want to try to classify the addressee. Who was the bat talking to? Mm-hmm. That's my cat. I heard talking, it. Talking to me. And then finally, what they do is they... Wait, uh, try... they're interested in one more thing, right? Yes. Like in... all good scientists, they're interested in sex. Yes. <laughs> uh, many scientists, not doing that great at sex. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we've watched Just enough a... animals doing it. We should be better. Right. All I do is watch... Oh, nope. Don't want to hear that. <laughs> no one wants to hear that. <laughs> you don't watch the David Attenborough OnlyFans? <laughs> uh... <laughs> it's, it's called Wet and Wild. With As I now touch my nipples. Oh, why, why did you put that in my head? Everyone said... So they're looking at sex and they're looking at what they quarrel about. So yeah, when it comes to classifying sex, right, you have a 50% chance, chance level Usually. of guessing here is... Right. Sorry, I know, go on, go on. I know I do. Oh, um, <laughs> the level of guessing, right, if this model is just guessing, would be 50%, right? Because you either are guessing male or female in this case. Oh my god, really? That's a horrible job <laughs> Why use a model when you could just flip a coin, Nicole? Exactly, right. And that's and and they're doing like 40, 60. So it's not like super impressive, especially when you think about uh, what you see in a lot of state-of-the-art models and people that are just doing machine learning to like classify images. Like, is it a cat? Is it a dog? You know, we're usually hot getting like... Hot dog or not a hot dog? <clears throat> right, exactly. For all the Silicon Valley fans out there. Right? So you're usually getting like 90 something above accuracy. So getting like 40, 60 is a little bit like... So admittedly, this is 2016. So maybe they weren't using the fanciest model or something. Wait a minute. Why don't they just have two roosts? One with all females and one with all males and then compare them against each other? Yes. Yes. That is definitely... So you could think about different experiments you could do that would provide you more data where you could sort of like ask that way and i think that's a really good idea and uh with like again, i said i'm gonna just, contact that author so i'll just include that yes please <laughs> just sort of like going ahead to the end without we're being a little bit unfair okay. but just to fit this all into a podcast they then try to get the context identification and this is the part we were talking about before right like the true label is it is it fighting yeah. is it mating is it which uh, looks a lot like fighting. aggression right <laughs> It helps if you paint one of the bats pink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so then now they have a, you know, a giant matrix where they're trying to classify each one of these. So they train a classifier on all these calls to classify by context. Now mm-hmm. they want to ask, like, am I able to predict that correctly on a new data set that my classifier never saw before, my machine learning model? And so like in figure three, they show you this thing, a confusion matrix. What these confusion matrices are is like on the x-axis is the predicted label, and then on the y-axis is the true label. And the color in the box, like the it's like a heat map. Yeah. The brighter the brighter it is, that's like the higher accuracy. And, and I'll so, have a picture of this uh, available for people who want to take a look at it. Yeah. 
that produces, like Nicole was mentioning, a diagonal line when you're comparing a mating sound to a mating sound. And yeah. you're, you're actually comparing the thing that the algorithm predicted it was and it correctly matches with what it was. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So the fact that we see that diagonal line that's really bright is a good sign. That means it's mm -hmm. doing if we didn't see that instead and we so right now we see the diagonal line that's really bright and like a bunch of blue around it. Yeah. If we if we saw a bunch of brightness sort of like spread out all over the matrix, that would say that the model was misclassifying everything and it's not doing that. Yeah, because the lack of a bright color indicates that uh, that was how many times uh, the model thought that they were mating when actually they were perch aggression or something. Right. And the model basically never thought that. So yeah, so, right. yeah, right. So 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 that is us trying to explain a confusion matrix without a visualization. But the main point here is that they actually can do a surprisingly good job, especially considering how many categories of interactions there are mm -hmm. so so that confirms their hypothesis they want to argue that there is a bunch of information in these vocalizations about the context but that's information that a computer can detect how are we supposed to know that the bats are able to detect it exactly right so here's the part that's tricky they want to answer that question of like what can the bats tell but what they but what they did is they sat there at a computer and a person <laughs> labeled it all yeah and then they and then they trained a computer you know a, a math model to basically replicate what a person did and so now you have to ask like just because a math model can replicate what a person did does that really tell us how much the bats know well no it doesn't is that really <laughs> all they did that's really the whole paper Okay. And there, and there's a lot of papers doing this approach right now or something similar. And I mean, it, I can see it as a good jumping off point. You know, you can say now that, you know, the first line of their discussion, we have shown that social vocalizations of fruit bats, they do contain multi-layered information. So the next step, now that you know that there's multiple layers of information, then you can go on and see if the animal is privy to that. Yeah. But... Exactly. Yeah, I feel like uh, I I want more. I do too. <laughs> I do too. I'm not gonna sing, but uh, Little well, Mermaid I'm... is canceled. <laughs> Just let Lizzo play the Little Mermaid <laughs> <laughs> like a flute. <laughs> Lizzo will pick up the Little Mermaid, blow into her mouth, and oh, great! Now I'm what? picturing <laughs> okay. it. I'm not going to... This is a fantasy I have. I shouldn't share it on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> what doesn't get translated into the multi-layers of this audio is the face I just made. <laughs> so I'm totally with you that I would love to see some more behavioral work that complements this analysis. You're right. Like They are careful in some parts to say this is like a lower bound. And also... The fact that a human can see it suggests mm -hmm. that, like, there is something there, right? But it's like, how much more do we know that we didn't know just by a person staring at it by eye and being like, that's fighting aggression. That's. Can I you get know. your take on something uh, that happened to me socially recently? I was <laughs> yes. sitting across from. It's so kind of you to suggest that I would have any ability to 
uh, evaluate a social situation. Yeah, I situation. thought, well, why don't I take somebody who knows nothing of social interaction and see what they think? <laughs> I was sitting across from a software developer. <laughs> this is already hilarious. Uh, he was telling me that he was working with machine learning. And when he says mm-hmm. machine, he means computer learning software. And um, he was comparing it to the brain. I just wanted to know, like, what you, if you were in that position, what would be some of your responses to somebody posing that in a in a discussion? You're saying to me, mm-hmm. if I were you and some <laughs> tech bro, <laughs> if some tech bro were like, "Hey, you know, machine learning is just like the brain," what would I? How would I respond? Uh, it would be like a spider monkey, right? No, I would punch him. <laughs> As me? I like how you're like using me as an avatar. No, what would you do? <laughs> if you were in that social situation where a software engineers... I fucking punch him. <laughs> you gotta punch these motherfuckers. <laughs> they are fucking killing us. These fucking... Okay, I have my reasons why I don't I'm... like it. I really want to hear yours. <clears throat> <laughs> I broke you. I'm sorry. Do you know what effective altruism is on the <laughs> It's a made-up religion for tech bros to believe where they convince themselves that in the far distant future we will all be uploaded into computers like the singularity and we will have invented an intelligence that is beyond our own capabilities and therefore they're allowed to do whatever the fuck they Mm -hmm. want. So if they can lie to themselves and say that they've figured out intelligence and that a computer is just like the Mm -hmm. brain, even though they've never bothered to understand the brain... (laughs) or to even really understand what computers are doing, then they can get away with whatever the fuck they want. So that is why we need to kill these motherfuckers now. And I'm speaking as someone who does this for a living. Does what? Pretends that computers are brains. (laughs) Oh, you're surrounded by this. Yes. I had my response. My response was, "Uh uh-huh. (laughs) similar similar to what i would have done that's what i actually did like a coward (laughs) no i was in a particular social situation in which i was uh attempting to roost for the night and i was more interested in um decreasing the amount of aggression yeah and you didn't want to like uh no my my response is usually like uh, that analogy is made by um you know a software engineer talking about machine learning and when neuroscientists use that analogy they talk about the pulvener and say that it's a different layer (laughs) of the computer brain right the pulvener is just a machine learning model i think is that what you're saying Mm -hmm. what one last point about this paper along the same lines another issue that can happen with machine learning is you can have this thing called data leakage yeah where because we don't actually know how these models work and they can pick up on things that we don't intentionally include, then they can learn to classify based on some feature that it, that is not one that we intended for them to learn mm. from. For example, in a lot of these medical studies, they've gone back and found mistakes where the machine learning model classifies like a sample number that indicates which lab some sample came from. Yeah. If it turns out like all the control samples came from this lab and the experimental samples came from a different yeah. lab that had a different watermark in the image or something like that, then it will pick up on those features and it will it will use that even though we don't want it to. Yes, do that. I've heard about that with electrophys and having a 
machine accidentally interpret like noise that's having to do with the animal moving uh, right. and accidentally right, right, classifying right. that is something important uh, yeah same idea so so it could be like something about the background sounds speaking of noise like maybe the different sound boxes they have the groups in help the model actually classify mm. like it's a it's able to figure out you know, if four of the females are in one box and four of the females in the other box and those two boxes sound slightly different and the features are distributed differently because of that, that might be helping it do like half of its job. Yeah, is the, uh, this, is, this would be helpful for me to understand. Um, is the purpose of the post-experienced model to be specific for all future Egyptian mummy bats? Or is it only yeah. for this particular place and time and individuals? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, this is like the ultimate issue in machine learning. This People talk about generalization. Mm -hmm. And so like we know that in the in the wild, in the real world, when you try to deploy these models, you get what people call, uh, there's different words for it, like domain shift or distribution shift. So like in the real world, <laughs> things move around. Yeah. Right. So, so like at some point, those bats are going to start to get older. Their voices are going to sound different or something. So it wouldn't be as good at predicting even on the same bats. Right. Interesting. So, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, this is not like the end-all, be-all. It only really works on their data set. That's what we know from the paper, at least, right? Okay, that it can be done. And before you want to use something like this, you have to do it for your own lab all over again. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. So you have to redo this study if you ever want to well, use that algorithm? Well, there, there, there are some giant Egyptian bat, Egyptian fruit bat data sets Scary. out there. So, oh. so, yes. Oh, data sets. Okay. Not... not the, the giant Egyptian fruit bats are out there, too, just in time for Halloween. Thank you so much for bringing that paper, Nicole. Thanks for letting me talk about it. It was so fortuitous that we recorded this right after I had that conversation about machine learning recently. Yeah, now we have to go back in time and kill that software developer before he... <laughs> Fuck, you know, he might he... listen. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> great great guy and i love what you've done with uploading me to the singularity yeah that'll happen elon this musk sim <laughs> this simulation is amazing it's great in this metaverse all right closing ceremonies time i definitely don't feel like i'm in an eternity of silicon health <laughs> we can't guarantee that that's actually on the description of the singularity software that you have to upload <laughs> we do not guarantee that you will not be stuck in an infinite loop of hell i thought it i thought it was weird when i read that on <laughs> you're like wait a minute <laughs> okay all right closing ceremonies time we are going to be uh, giving you a takeaway. Uh, this is something that uh, we think that you should uh, remember from the show or something that we're personally going to work on for the next two weeks. And mine is very simple. Uh, my takeaway is a pet snake will never love you back. And my takeaway is we should all try to understand what it's like to be a female bat. Just more empathy for the lady bats. We should be more... I'm very proud of bats in general for being the only mammal that can fly. I mean, like, great job, guys. Like, awesome. So why did you poison us all with COVID? <laughs> Whoa. I was not 
expecting to go there with too it. Too soon? But... <laughs> no, it's not too soon because it's not over yet. <laughs> It'll never <sighs> be over. All right. Please follow us on Twitter and MisbehaviorJC and Instagram at the same thing, MisbehaviorJC. You can find me, Amiel, if you can't tell me and Nicole's voice apart, at Curls PhD. And you can find Nicole at... Nickel Dave. I'm going with the real one. Out in the wild. Wow. N-I-C-H-O-L-D-A-V. Very nice. Thank you for allowing us into your auditory pathway as we talk to you about bats and, and what they sound like and why snakes are scary. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies about the show. But please do not tell your tell PI. Your PI. Do not. They don't. don't. Nope. You'll get in trouble. Yeah. You want to graduate. Keep it on the... When will you graduate? Keep it on the DL under the hood. Exactly. Please subscribe and rate us anywhere you're listening to this or on a bathroom stall. We like that too. And we hope you, we join, hope you the join the club, club again, again soon. I'm not afraid of ghosts. I'm not afraid of sharks. I'm not afraid of cancer. I'm just afraid of things. They really creep me out. Where are their arms and legs? It's not okay. I'm not afraid of ghosts. I'm not afraid of sharks. I'm not afraid of cancer. I'm just afraid of things. They really creep me out. Where are their arms and legs? It's not okay. Oh, Mr. Baby, Bitsy, 